Hello, and thank you for joining us. This is Brian, your host of the Parish the Thought Show. The opinions of said host and our guests have not been sanitized or scientifically tested, so please consume at your own risk. Ladies and gentlemen, and whoever else is listening, welcome back to the show. In 2015, my next guest, author and speaker Portia Lauder, was sentenced to seven years in federal prison for money laundering and mortgage fraud. After two years of blaming everyone for her incarceration, she finally had the courage to own it all, took full responsibility, and became a spiritually free woman while remaining behind bars and serving another three years of that seven-year sentence. Sit back and ride along this journey from the pit of despair to a beautiful and full life of love, honesty, and friendship in and out of the system. Portia, thank you so much for joining me today. Yeah, super excited to be here. Thanks for having me. You have a hell of a story. Um, <laughs> I think I do. Yeah, <laughs> you've got a story. You know, you know, uh, there was this, there was a uh, guy used to do this the series on, uh, and maybe we talked about this called Story Trek on BYU TV. Yep. Yep. Well, now he's got a new. He's doing that again, mm-hmm. and it's called You Got a Story. So you got yeah. a story. <laughs> yeah. So let's let's talk about that. Tell me how. Let's just start from the is wherever the beginning looks like for this sake of this discussion. Yeah. What decisions led up to it? Of you getting yeah. incarcerated? What that was like? The coming out? The re- all that. Yeah. I'm just well, gonna shut up now. Okay. <laughs> Don't do that. Uh, no, I'll. Um, I, I'm gonna just do a really like a five minute. Uh, leading up to because I think it's useful to understand you know I um, before any of you know before I was a felon or got involved in the legal system um, I had a pretty rough start you know even as a young girl I'm the oldest of seven kids my I um, I dropped out of high school when I was 17 had my first child so um I, if looking back at myself, I can see, you know, I just didn't know who I was. I didn't know my worth and had a hard time with that. And had, uh, even though my parents were LDS, I had no interest in the, you know, the, the religion. And um, it really took me getting beat up pretty good. I had two kids, was a single mom, went through giving a child up for adoption and then became addicted to drugs. And so this all took place. And by the time I was 25 and at 25, that's when I like, hit a bottom and reached out for help. And I actually went to an LDS bishop, even though I hadn't been going to church or anything because I didn't know where to turn and I was desperate. And, and so I found recovery and I'm so grateful for that in my life because it served me well. It doesn't mean that I didn't, haven't made some big mistakes because we're going to talk about that. But Um, at that point in my life, I came to understand the value of living a more principle-centered life, like how being honest and um, admitting your mistakes, serving others, trying to make amends for the mistakes that you've made, taking a solid inventory. Those are all the 12 steps of either AA, NA, or the church now has a 12-step program. And so um, I really walked away from the people and the things that I was doing, it was what I thought would be the hardest thing I would ever do in my life. And I started to go to church and got involved in this program. And I got sober and met my husband, Chad, who is just a great guy. And we went to the temple. And I can tell you that like when someone like me who has not been active in the church and who's been you know, addicted to drugs and struggling in all these other areas. I would say even before drugs, it was relationships, thinking that I had to have a man in my life to make me whole, um, goes to the temple. It's a big deal for me. It seemed like, you know, that was something I couldn't really do. And so it was pretty awesome for me. And I was humble, which is such a great thing to be. And I'm, I'm not as good at it as I wish I was, but at that point I was. And so, um, can I, can I stop you yeah. for a second? Yeah. Jump in. You said, you know, the thought of you going to the temple, you didn't think that would be for someone like you. Why? What, what was it that you didn't feel? Well, I, you know, even at a young age, I remember feeling like I didn't fit in with the church. Like it just seemed like there was them and me, which I know isn't true. And actually I still think me trying to fit some kind of a mold, isn't the answer. Just me being truly authentic to myself and keeping those principles and commandments and having a relationship with heavenly father is the way it has to work for me. So in other words, 
I can't get up in sacrament and bear my testimony and say, you know, I've done all these things right. I have to just get up and be honest and say, you know what? I'm a total screw up. <laughs> like I have to get up and say, I really struggle. And I have to talk about the hard things I've been through because if I don't, I don't feel connected to anyone. And then I think everybody else in the church has it together and I'm the only screw up. Cause that's how I felt. Like I really did. I just thought there's, there's like a different group of people that know how to do things right. And I'm just not one of them. And so that was part of it. And then the other thing, you know, with my addiction and then being, I had been in and out of relationships. I was a single mother, had all these children. I mean, I had two as a single mom plus one, I gave up for adoption. So all this trauma and all these things that didn't really fit in the, the LDS box, at least the way I saw it. But I went, I went to the temple, I got worthy and I went and it was life-changing and it was beautiful, but I think I was still trying to fit in the box. I didn't talk about my past at that point. I started to build my own business. My husband and I, you know, I went to church and did all the things, but I didn't talk about the fact that I was recovering from an addiction, that I was going to 12-step meetings. And I didn't talk about the fact that I'd been married before and, and divorced and, you know, had given a child up for adoption. I never talked about that to anybody. It was like, those are things you just pretend didn't happen. And, um, it took, I don't know, I was sober four and a half years. We were building this life together. And then, um, after I had our second child together, Chad and I, so I have four now I relapsed. I had a back surgery and they prescribed prescription drugs. And what I know about myself now is I can't take those at all. You know, some people will say, oh, can't you just take an Ambien or an Adderall? None of it. I can't take any kind of prescription drugs because I'm an addict. And, um, I don't, I, I'm not willing to give up the freedom that I have in my life from sobriety for that. But at that point in time, my life was busy and I was in denial and I just kept using these prescription drugs. And I remember thinking like, you know, I just, I guess I thought my life is so busy and chaotic. I had nannies at that point, taking care of my kids, my business, my photography by Porsche business grew to 200 weddings a year. So I have like employees and I'm, I'm sh taking pictures from sun up to sun down and then I'm editing. And back then it was negatives and then digital. And it was just a lot traveling. And, and so real estate popped up and, and I thought, you know, that was going to be my ticket out. Like I could work less if I could make more money and pay off my house or I don't know. Anyway, worthy, um, those are worthy goals. They are, but like, I, I mean, I, as I came to know later that to trade time for money in that way, like what really is so valuable is your time and your experiences in life. So here I am trying to make more money so I can spend more time with my kids when we could have had less and spent, and I could have spent time with my kids, right? Like I never needed that much money. I never needed a fancier. I mean, I built a new home and none of that stuff. I didn't need a fancier car. I didn't need more clothes. None of that meant anything to me later when I went to prison. The only thing that mattered to me um, was the time I missed, like the little experiences of, of driving your kid to school, which I could have done always. And I chose to hire people to do that so that I could go work and make more money. So it was just like I was trading everything of value for something completely worthless, which is money. You know, at that point. I mean, later on, I came to see that, that, that wasn't something I was going to take with me. It didn't define me and it really didn't make my life any better. But so I, I, I see this about myself now. It's not just prescription or, or drugs because I've used illegal drugs too. It is also hustling. I like to hustle. Like I know this about myself now and, and I like to do them both at the same time. So when I start to use the drugs and my judgment gets off then it's like, oh, and I want to go do that deal because it's a rush to do that deal. And I want to make more and I'm going to prove myself and be better. And, and when really everything important is inside of me, like nothing external is going to make me feel more whole. It's, you know, distracts did, from that. Did the drugs make you hustle better or just give you a false? It just made me really grandiose. Yeah. Like a like, false sense of confidence and they numb out your judgment. So like your moral compass. Now, for me, like when I first started in real estate, I started flipping lots and that's not illegal, like to buy a, a lot and flip it for more. Right. And then I decided to, um, well, if I can make that kind of money, I'm going to build a spec home. So I bought a couple lots and started these 
construction deals to sell because everything's moving so fast. And then I decided I might as well like put a whole neighborhood under contract, <laughs> you know? I mean, that's the thinking. So I've got like 15 lots now under contract in hard money loans. So I'm paying these big interest payments. So I, and I, construction loans are harder to close than just a flip loan. So now I've got all these payments going out and I'm not flipping lots fast enough to cover the payments. So somebody introduces me to an equity deal, which means you buy the house for a million, you get a $2 million appraisal, you get a loan for a million five, and then you pull 500 cash out for yourself. And then you reinvest it in something else. And I remember seeing people do it and talking about it and even advertising it. And I remember my gut saying, why would you ever do that? Why would you borrow more money? It doesn't make sense. And I remember somebody introducing them and thinking I would never do that. And then I'm doing tons of them pretty soon. Like I just kept on keeping on. So I clearly knew, but I just, I just did it anyway. From the time you realized that you thought this is fishy. Uh huh. So you did it. How long was that time frame? Probably three months. Like, I think desperation set in. Like, I probably made three months worth of interest payments at fifty grand a month on a, on a, you know, a subdivision of lots. And then these deals became more appealing because I could pay, make my interest payments. And as and as soon as the construction loans came through, I would make so much money I could pay. It's just a real estate Ponzi scheme. I mean, that's yeah. really what it is, but it didn't seem like that, but you can sell yourself anything, you know, I, yeah. you can, you can, you can tell you. Yeah, totally. <laughs> so, um, and I remember feeling crappy about it, like just, but I would always justify to it, it's like, well, I'm not like faking loan apps. I'm not like faking pay stubs. Like there's always someone worse, right? That those people are the fraudsters. <laughs> I'm not like, I'm fine. I'm in the middle, you know, or I'm not, I can quit any time. Yeah. I can quit any time. Yeah. Yeah. And, but no, my addiction got worse. Cause I mean, you know, now I've got the heaviness of all this stuff going on in my life and my marriage isn't going great. Cause my husband hates all this and he doesn't know what to do. Cause I'm crazy. Like he knows he's like, I can't stop her. She's going to do what she's going to do. And you know, I, and then I, I feel like I'm deficient in all these other areas as a parent. So I'm buying my kids things and I'm spending money and I'm, you know, I'm trying to make up for what I'm not doing and it's in the worst possible way. And, you know, I remember thinking like, I wish I just had cancer, which I know sounds so bad. You know, that would be an honorable way to just take, to get out of all of this. I could just, I, I put myself in such a terrible situation and when the FBI showed up, like I started hearing I was under investigation and all that did is make me mad because I thought, well, you know, there was another Porsche doing real estate, which is so unusual. It's an unusual name, but I had heard that I'd been banned from certain title companies. And I was like, why, you know, and I heard, well, they think you're this Porsche and the FBI is investigating her. And in the end, I just knew I just knew, I just knew what I was doing was wrong and it made me mad and it scared me. And, and instead of just saying, you know what, I need to stop. Like, this is not okay. I don't feel good about it. If people are questioning my integrity or just my integrity is not right. I need to get it right. Like any of those things would have been a much better choice than the choice I made, which was to deny it, pretend like it wasn't happening, throw a fit, hire lawyers, you know, just, I handled it as bad as you could. And I drug it out and it didn't go away. It only got worse. My, I could have gotten two years in prison, but that seemed impossible to me. Like, I'm like, I can't go to prison. If I go to prison, my life is over as I That's know for other people, not me. That's, yeah. I'm a good person in my mind. I'm like, the, and the other thing I thought is people in prison are bad. It's a really bad thing. If you go to prison, you're bad. And there's no coming back from that. Like I just, you know, I mean, I've already come back from being a single mom and addicted to drugs and I'm, and I'm using at this point. So my judgment's just terrible. I remember thinking I got to get sober, even telling my lawyer at that point, I was like, I can't, I, he kept telling me, well, I, I, 
I found lawyers to tell me I wasn't guilty, right? Like you can always find a lawyer and pay them whatever. Because I had lawyers who said, you're going to do a couple of years, but I got rid of those lawyers. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> yeah. But I brought this lawyer on and he said, you know, I don't think you're guilty. He's like, what you did isn't that big of a deal. In fact, I remember saying, no, actually, I did do some things wrong. He goes, oh, that little snafu, that's not that big of a deal. I'm like, here's some more money, <laughs> you know? But yeah, so, you know, eventually I just, I made it worse for myself and ended up having to walk into a, a federal courthouse anyway, which was a shocking experience because of the denial that I had put myself, you know, I'd been denying this and fighting it for so long. And the reality of my situation was serious. I had, I was facing zero to seven years and I was going to, I knew when I walked in, the judge is going to give me seven. And it was just such a shock that I had put myself and my family in such a terrible situation. I think everyone that goes into a courtroom has that moment of clarity that's very painful and also can be a transforming experience if you allow it to, or you can get angry. You know, you could be angry and think that I was done dirty, which I did do for a while, but it, it still was a, I like, it was just an awakening. The reality of my situation was, was really so painful. Why did you feel like you were done dirty? Everyone feels that way when they go to, to you Just know, a common thing. Yeah. Who? Yes. Well, I mean, it's so easy to look at. Like, what about all the people that did worse things that got away with it, right? Or, um, I, the banks got away with it. They're dirty. They, they like, they were way more corrupt. They weren't even coming for the banks. They wanted the little guys like me or. What about my neighbor that was out doing these deals and the feds didn't even talk to him or just because my name's Portia and another Portia gets hit. I'm a mother with kids. What about I'm willing to stay home and, and work to pay this debt? Nope. You want to put me in prison? Like all those things can pop into your head or the feds are just as dirty. They pulled all kinds of dirty tricks. Like they, when they're investigating me, they did this and this and this and they lied. And they, I mean, it's so easy to find fault. And when you're in that situation, you will make any excuse because it's so scary. And, and I, you know, I've thought often if I could go back and do it again, I would just own it right away. So I could find the power to move forward. But I had a dream a while ago that I was in that horrible situation, the part leading up to it. And I remember that terrible fear that I had. And I thought, even knowing everything I know, I don't think I could do it any different. It was so scary, you know, that I was felt like I was fighting for my life. And, and I didn't trust them. So why am I going to say, yes, I did it. I'm going to sit and deny it. And then when they hit me with a lengthy Senate, I mean, why did I get seven years? They could have given me two years. Were they just trying to make an example of me? Like all those things pop through your mind and they're not wrong, but they're, they're very weak. They're not they're, It's just not the powerful way to move forward in your life. It doesn't matter if other people did worse things. It doesn't matter that they didn't you know, the, the banks got away with it. It's my integrity that I need to fix. It's who it's me taking ownership so that I can have the power to move forward. It's me that needs to make things right with my kids. It's me that I don't care about everyone else's integrity, my integrity. I want it to be right. And the only way to make it right is to acknowledge and admit my mistakes so I can move forward. But I didn't know that when I, when I was going through all this, it took a while to figure that out. <laughs> So, well, that's an interesting, I remember in your book, you, you had to deliver yourself. That's an interesting, oh that, yeah. That yeah. was an self, interesting the, ride. You the self-surrender. Yeah. Self-surrender. I, I <laughs> yeah, didn't know that was a thing. I thought once you, you were, you're yeah. convicted and yeah. cuff, cuff and away you go, but clearly I don't well, know. Well, that depends on the person and the crime. Like, um, I didn't realize this, but I came to find out that I'm actually was very privileged in terms of my whole experience. Like for me, it seemed horrible, but in comparison to a lot of other people who don't have a husband, who didn't have a paid lawyer, who didn't have, you know, women that get pulled off the street, they're going to go They're They're not going to see the light of day. They're going to sit there in a holding cell. They're going to wait until they can get them in front of the courtroom. They're going to go right to prison and they're not going to see their kids and they're not going to have any time to clean up anything in their life. So here I am complaining and whining, but in actuality, my situation is much better than most. So I didn't realize that, but a privileged yeah. prisoner. That's an, interesting... Oh, I was. Yeah, I totally was. <laughs> I, that's just a kind of a contradiction in terms. Yeah.
No. But, so no. how long, I mean, because you said you were still in denial. How, how long in did you just go, yeah, this is all me? <laughs> Two years. Two years of that. <laughs> Yeah. Two years of setting around me with other, I mean, there's the whole shock. The first year was just denial. Oh, I'm not going to do this time. There's no way someone's going to get me out. They're not going to make, I'm not going to do this. It's not happening. So I'm still in denial. I've been in denial. I go in the courtroom. I have this realization of what I've done. And then I go to prison and I'm devastated. I'm in so much pain. I think I can't even, I can't do this. Right. Well, the way out immediately is denial. <laughs> You don't want to suffer like that. So it's like, oh, I'm not going to do this time. Nah. I mean, I had like a lot of praying and a lot of, you know, seeking help and and determination to do something different. But really, it did take a long time of sitting around and talking about how screwed up the system is and how rotten the, the I was still I had a blog and I would write all the things the prison would do wrong on my blog and then post it online. Yeah. Well, that's interesting that they allowed you access because I know my young friend, he has no access to the outside world digitally yeah. at all. It depends. Well, email. he's in state federal he's prison. Federal. Well, he's in, he was in state. He's in, he's in federal now and he's been cut yeah. off again. Yeah. Well then he's acting a fool to be honest. That's <laughs> there's a guy in my ward, ironically <laughs> enough, who used to work at near the prison where he's at. And he's like, yeah, they don't just do that to be assholes. They no, to yeah, absolutely not. No, yeah, and I mean, okay, it's a prison. Like, the environment's not perfect. They don't send all the good people there that never did anything wrong. I mean, it's a tough environment. There's people in there that have screwed up that are there for a reason that need to be there. And there's some people that probably did get a, a little bit of a raw deal or a big raw deal. There's officers there that are doing their best that are just people that are trying to do the best they can, but they have a job to do, you know? And so my, at first, all I did is set focus on everything they were doing wrong. I did have access to the outside world through email. I would send, you know, stuff to my husband and he would post it. And, but that didn't get me anywhere because I'm not focusing on myself. I mean, all that is, is just a tactic to try to look outside yourself and blame everybody else. There's no power in that. There's no growth or moving forward that way. As long as you're complaining about everything else, you don't have any control over that. It's you that, that you can control and change. And as soon as you're willing to look at yourself and do the work, that's where you're going to grow. That's where you, you know, but at that, it took me a year and then they shipped me to Wasika and I think when I got where, to Minnesota, where's, where's that? In Minnesota. Minnesota. In Minnesota. Okay. Sounds very so Minnesota-ish. Yeah. And it was a it was a, a really pretty compound for a prison. Um they had green grass and Minnesota's cold in the winter, but beautiful in the summer. It's we didn't have AC, so it was hot in the summer. Um, but I loved being outside and it and it I think I spent like six months just crying because I had hurt my family. I had left my husband in such a terrible situation financially. The reality of my situation started to kick in the, the, you know, and I felt really close to God. It's strange, but like, never did I feel any closer. I would set in nature and I would feel so loved and connected and so much pain because of the reality of what I had done. But I allowed, I walked through that pain. I mean, I remember my roommate saying you were hurting like I could see your pain every time you walked in I would sit outside until they tell us we had to come get counted and then I'd go right back outside and I would just cry and cry and beg God to take care of my kids to make things right and I think the reality of what I'd done started to kick in but I still wasn't ready to take full ownership of it because it was too painful like all I'm doing now is accepting that I've done this and that's really painful like how do you say you know, this happened and it was me. I still wasn't ready to say it was hundred percent me. I think looking back at it now, it makes me laugh. Cause I was like, I would think about all the things the government did wrong. And one day it occurred to me that there was, they were probably never going to come and apologize. <laughs> like that wasn't going to happen. I was going to be waiting a long time for that apology. <laughs> and that's when I, I started to think, I got to find my way out of here. Like I got to find my way out. I can't feel this. Like I, I just felt so victimized and I, and it made me feel weak and very imprisoned and I wanted to be free. And so I started looking and I would watch the people 
that were like myself, white collar, smart people that would sit around and talk about all their theories as to what, why they were innocent and the government had done them dirty. Now you're thinking smart people, why are they doing that? I don't know, but that's what we did. <laughs> you know, We just spent hours doing it. But the ones that came in, like the girls that came in that didn't have any privilege, that didn't have lawyers, paid lawyers, they're like, I'm a drug dealer. Of course, I'm going to prison. That's what happens to drug dealers, you know? And I was like, wait, like they were able to move forward. And I, I saw me and my friends as stuck. And I'm like, I want to move forward, you know? So I started to just really work at that. And I'm telling you, the, the most freedom I've ever felt was when I made that list it was so cool because I made this spreadsheet. It was every ugly thing I'd ever done in categories. You would think that's not a cool thing to do, but you'd be amazed at how when you really get honest and you kind of eliminate the judgment, you write out your life, you become more objective about it. Like you can truly let go of a lot of that stuff. And then owning it, I said it out loud. I, I wrote letters to people and asked for their forgiveness. I remember telling my children, this is a hundred percent my fault. Very painful. My daughter told me she didn't want to talk to me again. And it took her two years to talk to me again. She had every right to be upset and hurt, but we were building a new life based on truth. And that, that is the only way to do it. But yet we avoid, I think as human beings, we avoid that because it's so painful to acknowledge and it's scary, but yet it's the way forward. It's where the power lies, you know? So when you said, you know, you left your husband in, in kind of a mess, what, what did the damage to your family? What did that look like? Oh, it was awful. I mean, this went on for a long time. So I spent all of our retirement. I spent every dime we had fighting bankruptcy. Um, Chad didn't, we didn't have a home or anything. When I went to prison, a neighbor reached out and offered to let him move into the, his, their basement. And he paid a minimal amount of rent. So he has three kids at home, two that are out of the house. And he didn't have a job like they didn't. I mean, he he just got drugged through it with my case big time. They they indicted Chad, too, on a conspiracy charge. He didn't do time, but he couldn't go back to work at the same job he had. He had to start completely over. So that was really hard for me to accept that I had done that. Like, whoa, the reality of I mean, when you're in the thick of doing it, you're just going, going, going. But then all of a sudden you're everything slows down and I'm sitting here, no distractions. And I have to, and I realize what I've done and what, how it's affecting him. They couldn't just fly out and see me. They didn't have the money to do that. I remember my kids coming out to see me and my daughter saying, and Jackson looking at Sadie and saying, we don't have the money to just go out and eat Sadie. We're just here. You just act like we're so rich and we have the money to do that. We don't. And he, he was working two jobs to have this beater car just so that, he, you know, that's what Jackson was doing. And Chad's working, trying to take care of kids. And Sadie goes, I, I'm not trying to say that we have to go somewhere nice. I was just asking if we could stop on our way. And I'm sitting there going, what have I done to my family? You know, and Sadie, and I'm thinking my kids live in Highland, Utah. They none of their neighbors, they all live are very wealthy. They're living in the basement of someone's home, which we're grateful for. They don't have an, I mean, somebody donated the tickets for my family to come out and see me and the hotel, and they don't even have money to stop and get fast food. And I'm sitting in here for free and they're making my food. I mean, it's crappy food and I would way rather be with them, but like I was helpless, you know, I couldn't, I couldn't try to fix it. And it was real, you know, and watching them now, I, I honestly believe that my children gained so much from this experience. Like my son, Jackson is totally independent, works hard, has a good job. Like my kids learned things that they wouldn't have learned, but watching them go through it because of my choices was really painful. And that's the kind of pain that makes you want to deny it and be pissed off at the government and everybody else, but yourself, because it hurts so deeply. So you and your husband worked together in the real estate? Is no, it, I, it was me doing the real estate, but I had him quit his job and stay home with the kids okay. <laughs> at a certain point. I mean, he had his own career, but it, it was like, I've got a photography business and a real estate. I'll pay, I'll make the money. So he stayed home for a while. And then um, put that man in his place. <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> awesome. And then, I mean, he was mad with, which with good reason. Like, yeah. I mean, he made bad choices too, and he knows that, but at that point, when the feds came in and started investigating me, if I would have pled 
they wouldn't have charged Chad. I mean, they pretty much told me that they're like, he needs to decide which side he's on. And then they, you know, I could have, I could have my belligerence added to the whole thing and made it worse. So he has a real reason to be angry at me. Right. But he chose a different path, you know, and I, and I have so much admiration for him because he chose a different path. He chose to love me and support me and, and to honor me to our children. Just say she, he allowed them to feel how they felt and to be angry, but he's like, we love her and we're going to, we're going to get through this as a family together. And so that, that's something that I really admire in Chad. Cause I don't know if I could have done it. Like I'm amazed at him. Yeah. You know? every reason to just say, mm, Oh, done. I'm out. everyone asking like, you're going to stay your family. Everyone's just like, you're staying. What are you thinking? You know? And, um, he did. Yeah. How, you know, like friends that you had, what do, what are, what are those, what happened to those relationships and, and are those people still friends or did you have to come out and rebuild everything again or. You know, I didn't think that I even wanted to look back. It was like, this was such an awful time. I just want to go forward. I came home. I knew I didn't want to start my own photography business right away because it seemed like that was a trigger back to real, you know, just all of it, the fast living. I knew after being in prison that I didn't care about money, that I wanted to, I, I built this connection with others and saw the world from such a different place. I saw the strength of these women that were struggling in ways I, I, I couldn't even comprehend before going to prison and saw my purpose so different in this experience. And so I came home and I, at first the government said, you've got to make more money. You're good at making money. So they sent, they told me I had to get a job making a certain amount. So I went to work as a photographer. And then once I got out of- Afterwards, they, they told you you had to make a certain amount of money? Yeah. Yeah. They, I mean, right. I was in the custody of the halfway house. So like oh. your case manager can say, you have to bring it. You know, they just, well, I tried to get a job working at a homeless shelter. They're like, nope, you can make a lot more than that, you know? So they set the standard at go work as a photographer, making more money. So I did. And then as soon as I was out of their custody, um, my probation has been awesome. I went to work at a treatment center and I started out just support staff and I've worked my way up into that. But um, I say that because I just kind of started this new life, but I also have gone back and connected with old friends. And that's been amazing. I just started another photography business. It's not going to be near as busy, but I'm, I mean, it's, I work with people with drug problems all day long and it's not that I don't totally love them, but I also want to do something a little bit different, like creative and beautiful. And, you know, so I'm trying to branch out again, but um, I mean, I, when I got home and I started working at this treatment center, um, I felt like my heart was so full. I had all this love for these women and my whole life had changed. And that's when I started writing my book. Like I, I would tell these women prison stories and they loved them. They would laugh. And, and so I would, I worked a couple of grave shifts a week and I would put them all to sleep. And then I'd go in there and write an outline. And I started, I had blogs and, and letters. And so I started organizing the content and I would write a chapter and then send it in to my friends in prison and they would read it and they loved it. They're like, it's our story. We love it. You know? So I didn't know what the, why, I mean, I had a lot of people say you should write a book. And I thought really, cause I'm not a college educated author or, you know, like I'm not a writer. I don't, but I also am really passionate and I'm a great reader and I studied a lot in prison and I've owned my own business. So I just started doing it and learning about it. And I think it was just me wanting to document that, these experiences, you know, my heart was full. I, I also, because I saw a human side of people, it was so different than I thought before I went to prison, like what people, what prison was like, these experiences, these people, it was so different. And I, I wanted to share that story. You, there's lots of people that share the story of, you know, how rotten it is and how mean people are and the fights that happen and how bad the food is. And I'm like, "Mm, that story has been told but nobody talks about the tenderness and the kindness and the strength it takes to rise above generations of hardship and the safety. Even there's a lot of people safer in prison than they are out here because of families challenges and things. So I just started writing my story and that is why I wrote living louder. And then I was going to, I looked at possibilities of publishing. I self-published, I 
could have gone a different route, but it was what I, cause I'm stubborn and I'm like, I'm going to own my own story. Nobody's going to own it. I'm going to do it my way. You know, I got editors and other people involved and yeah, I did that. It'll be two years in October that I'll have published that. And that's been great because I, it's available in prisons for free on all the tablets in prisons right now, state prisons, feds don't have tablets, but, um, and a lot of County jails. And I do quite a bit of speaking about my experiences, both in prisons and detention centers and firesides and the MTC. And I get calls for all, for all different events and I share those experiences and yeah. Um, oh, it may not be a perfect story, but it's your story and it's real. Oh, it's definitely not perfect. And it's still well, being written, that but is, you that, know, <laughs> to me, that is perfect. Cause every house has a story. Every person has a story. Thank you. So yeah especially in our culture that how we define perfect is caused a yeah. lot of problems. Right. No, it was for me. Um, I, you know, one of the beautiful things about going to prison is that you really, it's almost like who cares now? I don't care what anyone thinks. I mean, once you've been through this, it's like a death and you're, you're just free a little bit, you know? And so you could come out when I got out, I thought, I wonder if people are going to be excited. I think the world's going to be so excited, you know? And then I was surprised that people kind of wanted to pretend like it never happened. And I was like, are you crazy? Like my whole life changed, you know, you go on a mission, you come home, people celebrate. I'm expecting a party. Like let's celebrate, you know, you did a hell of a mission. Yeah. It was four years. It wasn't two. I doubled up. Let's celebrate. So um, yeah, I just started talking about it and I felt like I can try to make you feel comfortable or I can be comfortable. And at the end of the day, it's, I got to just be okay with me. So I just share my truth. And if it offends people, I, I mean, I don't want to be offensive, but yeah, works for me. So yeah, usually people aren't, it's people choosing to be offended that, you know, yeah. but yeah, but yeah, that's, I mean, I heard a talk show host years ago says, hang a lantern on your faults and then nobody can use those against you. <laughs> I love that. Just put it out there. <laughs> And then they can't come back to you. Oh, you, I found this dirt on a, this dirt about you. Oh, I love it. Yeah. Hey, I'm a scumbag. In fact, he says, I'm a recovering. It was Glenn Beck. Oh yeah. yeah. I'm a recovering alcoholic DJ. Yeah. What do you got? Okay. I was a scumbag and he just puts it out there. Right. Which makes sense. Cause then it can't be used as a weapon against you. Yeah. No, I remember this guy came to our prison and he spoke and he said, you know, when I first went to get a job, he said, I was sitting there looking at the guy that's interviewing me and he pulls up my rap sheet and he goes, wow. He goes, I mean, Mr. So-and-so it looks like you got a lot of pretty serious things on your, on your rap sheet. And he goes, oh, that's not even half of it. It's way worse than that. <laughs> and he said, the guy gave him the job just because he's like, are you kidding me? You know, I think that there's something to that. <laughs> So how does that work now? And, and I, I asked this not to, not to say, Hey, I know what you went through because I was arrested once, once yeah. <laughs> college for a traffic ticket that I, that I paid and it was never recorded that I paid. So there was a warrant out for my arrest. So I spent a night in jail Ooh. So at the end, and then I had to go to a judge and say, this here's the yeah. mess. And then I yeah. said, well, what office do I go to, to get my reputation back? And I <laughs> <laughs> do when someone asks if you ever been arrested, do you say no and have them find out, or you just say yes, but because all they're going to hear is the yes. Yeah. So that was an interesting. Oh so, yeah. well, so mine, is, yours, how, mine's different. Mine was yeah. on the ten o'clock news. Yeah, yours is <laughs> yeah. big. You, you were, you go big or go home. But how does it, so? How does that work now? Does it follow you? Like if you did want to get a job somewhere, I can get a job. I, I think that you know, I, I I remember writing this post on Facebook that said. um, I spent four and a half years in federal prison and I deserve to be there. And this guy commented and he goes, you might be the most honest person I've seen on social media. He goes, man, you're the kind of person everybody should want to hire. And I think that if you just face things so straightforwardly, whether, you know, now if you got a dang traffic ticket and spend a night in jail, I probably wouldn't even waste my time talking about that. Other than if you learn something that brings value, I learned a lot that brings value. So I feel like my experience actually makes me more valuable as an employee, my integrity being on time, all the things that I learned that I've incorporated. And the cool thing about it is I don't have to sell that. I just am that and, and good jobs show up in my life because I bring value. So I know that about myself. And that's why I tell people who are in prison, what do you, you I have seen people get out 
and do amazing things because they did the work. They went to prison, they did the work, they changed their life, and they are extremely valuable and people see it and know it and hire them and they progress through. Um, yeah, probably if you've got a child crime, you're never going to work at a daycare. I mean, let's get honest. Like, not I'm never going to do real estate. I don't want to be, I even got an offer from a bank once. I was like, why would you want to hire me? I don't want to work at a bank. You know, I mean, it was a, I was, I would be doing spreadsheets and marketing and kind of project management. It was this different kind of a bank. But I'm like, I don't even want to do that. Like, that's not interesting to me at all. But I, I feel like if you do the work and you become the person, that the right things will show up in your life. And you can't, you just can't, you can't fake it, you know, just be about it. And that's what I tell people in prison all the time when I talk to them is I'm like, man, you guys have this amazing opportunity to become the best version of yourself. And that person, when they leave prison, will get a job, will get a house, will things will just fall into place for you. And I've seen it happen over and over. But if you sit there and say, ah, the system's all broken, nobody's going to give me a shot. I'm like, you must not know who you are, you know, because mm. who cares about the system? I don't give any power to the system. I got out. I did the work. I had the time and I'm a better version of me. And, and I haven't had a problem getting a job. Not once I have lots of options. So that's interesting. I wonder, I wonder if it's the same for guys, I guess it, maybe it is if they own it, like you've done it. Yeah. I know some of them. I think of men, I don't ever think about it a woman coming out of prison is being like, Ooh, scary. But I think of guys coming out of prison as Ooh, scary. Nah. Why? Maybe yeah, it's because it's portrayed wrong. I have so many friends on LinkedIn that are men that are doing amazing work that got out of prison. I think it's more common for men. I think women face disadvantages, not they're not disadvantages, but because we're mothers and a lot of times we don't have that support. When we get out. It's like, we're trying to, you know, get our kids back or, you know, there, there's just a different, different challenges women face. So I don't see a lot of women leaders in this space that get out and they're like fighting for, I don't call what I do criminal justice reform. I'm just humanizing the system because when you know people and you know their stories and they're human, you can't lock them up for 20 years or 30 years. You know, you, it, you, your conscience won't let you because you love, could you lock me up for 20 or 30 years? No. But if you didn't know me and know my story and I'm not human, and a judge said all these horrible things about me. Yeah, you're going to throw away the key. That So I tell stories about human beings. And I think that people, it's an awakening for normal people that haven't, you know, had anything to do with the justice system. Like, whoa, seems unfair. Their parents were drug addicts. They were, you know, put in the foster system. And then they started dealing drugs and they ended up in prison and they got a 20 year sentence. Like, where's the help for this person, you know? And when you share those stories and how hard they're trying to overcome those challenges, it humanizes them. And, and that changes the system because people out here are connected to people in there. But I think there's a lot of men coming out that have changed your life. Like I've done podcasts with them and I, I have friends and they're just like, when I stood in that courtroom, my whole life changed. But some of them, it was like their third or fourth prison trip too. He's like, I did, you know, five trips to state, but when I stood in front of the feds, that's when I knew he's like the judge, I told the judge, send me to prison and give me a, just, let's just get this over with. He's like, I don't want to mess around, you know? And so, but whatever it took is what it took. And, you know, I've gotten better at not expecting people to figure it all out on the first trip. I work in drug treatment. It might take him three or four times and you love them. And then one day they get it. And you're so happy when they do. If it's trip number three, if it's trip number one, you know, same with people in prison. It might take them three trips to figure it out. I'm grateful I got a lengthy sentence. One year, I would have been cocky and arrogant. I would not, I would have gotten out and thought I'm on top of the world. I got seven years and that sobered me up, you know, scared me to death and just devastated me being separated from my children. And that pain is the foundation of the life I built today. And you, but you spent how long? Four and a half? Four and a half. I did a year in a treatment program that's hardcore, like no treatment out here compares to it. <laughs> and, um, and then I served in that program as well. And then I got good time and I got to come home early on through a halfway house. So on a seven year sentence, I did, I did almost five because they had me do some county time too. So pretty close to five years. is what I did. In the beginning of your book, you, there was a really cool quote that you, uh, it was about the person who is fallen and repented versus a person who's never really struggled 
Do you remember that? Remember what that mm. quote is? I was trying to remember because I'm thinking like there's the mental breakdown, which that quote is. I know what that quote is because I remember it. Um, well, I'll just I'll kind of summarize because I've said this before to other people. I'm like, I've never had an I've never had an addiction. I don't know, yeah. maybe six months to addiction to Mountain Dew. That's <laughs> nothing. Hey. I don't know what that's like. Yeah. But I've, you know, just friends that I have, have had that have, have struggled and fallen and been at the darkest places like you're talking about and uh -huh. come back one or two yeah. times. Yeah. That's you get, we get way more points for that, I think, than just existing. Cause you're falling yeah. and trying and falling and getting back. Yeah. up. Yeah. Oh, I think it takes a lot to come back. Um, at this point in my life, I think I would rather die than relapse on drugs. Cause I don't have the energy to climb out of those dark holes anymore, you know? Um, but I believe in people. I, I think there's always hope. And I think sometimes we get in the way of people suffering because suffering is where you build a new life. It's that pain that drives the change. I absolutely believe that people that, you know, I've seen people fall down and suffer in ways you can't imagine and come back from that. And it's amazing to me. Um, there's a lot of people that don't make it back. You know, I just buried one of my friends who um, had had come back from it and then relapsed. And when you come back from a really dark place and you go back into that dark place, that can swallow you right up. It's terrifying, you know? Um, I think that the downtrodden, those who have suffered in ways that I've learned being in prison are heroes, you know, they're heroes to keep going day after day and keep fighting this fight that where the odds are stacked against you. I, I think when I got to prison, I didn't realize how judgmental I was being raised in the church, even though I was kind of an outlier, I still had a lot of judgments when I thought, well, they're bad. I'm good. They say the F word all the time. I don't, they, you know, <laughs> I was so wrong. You know, yes, so don't, wrong. don't judge me because we sin differently. Yeah. But on top of that, I had all the advantages. My parents weren't drug addicted. My parents didn't leave me at, at a, someone's house, foster care and never come back for me. My parents didn't lose me to the system. My parents, you know, why would I think that my lack of integrity was any less than their drug dealing. I mean, how could I possibly think that way when I had all the advantages and made the mistakes I did? And yet they came from the hardest circumstances and were trying to rise above it. So I, I started to realize how foolish I had been to see the world the way I had. And it's so different than what I thought, you know, we don't all start in the same place. And because you, yeah. you could say, you could look at, you knew better. I was the worst, they, right? They didn't. Yeah, they didn't exactly. Know that was all they knew. So right. shame I'm on more you. culpable. Right. right. Yeah, kind of, so right. it shifted for me over time. But to start with, I thought, oh, I'm so much better because I don't act like that. Wrong. Over time, I came to realize how wrong my thinking was. And, and now I'm just honored to stand with the people that I met in prison. You know, I would never, I would never try to expunge my crime or anything like that because I am super proud and honored to stand with such brave people for sure. So I, I don't, I don't know if I want to wrap it up, but is what, if someone remembers nothing else of what we said, what's your greatest takeaway from this experience and oh, then yeah. how to apply it and like to, to, to teach people that may never go down that road, but that they can yeah. use the principles you've learned to better their worlds. I think that, um, what I would tell somebody that maybe hasn't had this experience, whatever hard thing you're facing, there is something so beautiful on the other side of it. You can't see it yet, but walking through this hard thing will change everything. Don't be afraid. Don't ever give up. The best part of your life is still ahead of you. I think I would tell people that, that, that honesty is complete power. Don't give away your power by making excuses. Just own it. Free yourself. Whatever it is. If you're late for something, just say, I'm late. I'm sorry, but don't try to make an excuse because it's the weakest way out. Um, I think I would say, you know, give yourself some grace and give everyone else some grace too, because we're all human and every one of us suffers and we're a lot more alike than we are different. It doesn't matter where you live or who you are, or what your experiences are. Every one of us is human and has suffered loss. 
and will continue to, and you just don't know. And be patient because it's a long game. Life and eternity is a long game. If I could have imagined my life the way it is now when I was 16 or when I was 21 or the day I stood in that courtroom, I couldn't imagine a life this beautiful. And I've been through a lot of really hard things. And I think the best is still yet to come. It's a long game. And all of those hard things happened. And yet the beauty of my life is true too. It can all be true. You know, the hard stuff and the beauty. So just, just accept it all and know it's not over. It just isn't over. No matter how dark it seems or where you're at or what mistakes you've made, there is beauty through it on the other side. So that's a huge dose of contrast therapy. <laughs> yeah, really. Yeah, it is. Yeah. And, and, and just growing through because every, everybody has something. Yeah. Absolutely. I don't care who you are. And in, in our culture, for those that don't know about the LDS culture, we, we can tend to be a bit judgmental and keeping up with the Joneses. I've never seen, I've only been in the church half my life, but I've seen that the devil, man, he gets in there. Oh, do you see what they have? Yeah. You yeah. should be like them. And oh, their life is perfect because they show up to church and everybody's not fighting or some silly, you know, fill in the blank, whatever yeah. excuse it is. Yeah. And it's so dumb, but Satan, that's one of his greatest tools. <laughs> She's so perfect. Yeah. She has it all together. Like you, <laughs> not me. Not other people not. were. <laughs> that's what like I used to think. Right? Your, your ward would probably think oh, they've got it. They've got everything. Yeah. yeah. Well, I make it super clear. Mine's really easy to see. I, it's not. And I think that that's, something very cool that I can do because my sins are, you know, really easy to see. And if I have a beautiful life after all that, then anyone can like, let's just give ourselves some grace, you know, and we're, we're just going to make some mistakes. We're all kind of on the same boat that way. So, yeah. And yeah, being more alike than we are different. And that's, that's something I'm trying to be an example <laughs> of and teach through what I do here and just, Hey, yeah. Just talk to people, get to know each other for yeah. the sake of just getting to know them. Absolutely. You know, to understand. But... Well, that, that's, I think this is a great place. We can, we can land the plane as Mike Rowe says on his podcast, <laughs> but uh, yeah, so, so I really, enjoyable. So. I appreciate you sharing this. This has been fun. Yeah. I'm sure we could go on and on and on and good well, luck with your, your Ted talk that's coming up. Yeah, that's kind of cool, huh? Yeah, that's way cool. Yeah, that's very cool. Uh, <laughs> I, I'm gonna be I'm gonna be on that stage one day with that's right. that I'm I've been working on for a while, but very cool. So that's cool. Yeah. So you, you yeah, your story's great and blah blah. I imagine blah, our blah. our paths will cross again. So <laughs> well, that's yeah. It's funny that I saw you there. Like, Where do I know that woman from? <laughs> and and it hit me afterwards. I'm like, oh. but uh, anyway. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate this. And then yep. we'll catch you on another one, hopefully. Thank you again for listening to the Parish to Thought Show. We would love your comments and feedback on our website at briankeithparish.com slash feedback. If you love or hate what you hear, please give us a rating on whatever platform you find us. You're still here? Click on the next episode for more from the Paris to Thought Show.